मशीन लगाओ लगा इस साइड से आलू घुसेगा उस साइड से सोना निकलेगा everybody and welcome to this episode of the attention please podcast so this is the ipl begins this week and i'm almost tempted to do another team based analysis because i'm so obsessed with ipl but i'm going to desist from doing that uh, instead i'm going to touch upon perhaps uh, the biggest news to emerge out of bengal in a while which uh, will have a huge impact at least within the next two months if not for more and uh, no i'm not referring to of course mamata banerji versus uh, versus shubhendu babu but uh, rinku singh um, opting out of ipl this season which was uh, possibly the greatest uh, blessing in disguise or not that bengal has had in a long 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 time and um, with that cheap shot at uh, rinku singh uh, let me come to this episode of the podcast so last time and again still we are going to still be going with politics for a while because i have been obsessed with the bengal elections the coverage which since the bliss it's bliss a blessing to have your youtube connected to your smart tv because i can in the evening when i sit with my dinner i can dive right into the bowels of bengal politics with curated content from multiple channels and bengali politics is this local parashad it's i mean if if watching republic english is smoking uh, camel cigarettes this is like smoking biri it has this this rustic flavor and things are you know bare metal and hard knuckle that's like politics stripped down to its essentialities so if you feel that politics in india has become dirty and personal and vicious well you haven't seen bengal politics where um, interviews are uh, let's just put it much less politically correct uh, politics is interspersed with personal battles like for instance today i was watching an interview with uh, the estranged wife of a tmc politician who then joined uh, bjp with his uh, paramour and then uh, she was denied a ticket by the bjp he got a ticket and so he again uh, quit the party what an what an honorable act of abnegation and now he is without a party but his wife who was left for the uh, the other woman uh, she has her tmc ticket so i just uh, finished watching about a uh, 40 minutes of her gloating over that so as i said of course there was nothing in terms of policy or what she stands for but that's par for the course in in bengal politics nobody i mean if you are part of uh, trinamool congress what do you really stand for except a personality cult for mamata banerji and if you are in bjp well we don't know what you stand for because all your members are trinamool congress uh, you know trinamool congress ex employees and i use the word employees with a full understanding of the ramifications of it but today let's talk about what i wanted to discuss in last uh, the last episode but i kind of ran out of time because as i said i've been trying to wrap this up within 40 minutes uh so i'm trying not to not to keep on talking and if 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 the topic goes uh it needs more uh, more in depth treatment i'm going to try to have it spill over into the next uh, episode rather than uh go on continue so let's just see how this works anyways so what i wanted to talk about and we kind of touched upon this in my interview with rahul roshan two weeks ago was about hindutva and we had we had brought that up and for me the definition of hindutva um minus the pejoratives is simply hinduism as a political identity so hinduism is a religious identity or i would say a more and again that's that's a topic for another day whether hinduism is a religion in the judeo christian definition of a religion i would say it's not as a collection of uh, heterogeneous traditions but hindutva is definitely a uh, a simplification a, a more uh, you know it it takes hindus it it takes this collection or as a bouquet of traditions uh, packages it as a religion 
And one can say that this this package already exists, but what distinguishes Hindutva from quote-unquote Hinduism is its use of Hinduism as a political identity. Now, I personally don't, and this is my own personal beliefs, I don't think of myself as a politically a Hindu, because for me, politics is about the individual. Uh, but that's purely my personal opinion. I, I do not want to... Uh, be thought of as a member of a, of any kind of group. And I think that the reason why politics is the way it is, is that politicians, regardless of the political spectrum, can always appeal to your group sensitivities and by doing so, manage to get away by not serving you as an individual. So that's really the trick that has been played. And again, this is something which Plato said hundreds and thousands of years ago, that this is really the way it works. So um, for me, I tend to not see myself as the member of any group, uh, whether it's my gender, whether it is my age, whether it is my religion, but that's just me. I, I also do not, I do not, again, it's my opinion isn't germane in this case, but the thing is that if you allow other religions, if you think that it is perfectly fine for them to organize on the basis of their religion in the way that you have no problem with, let's say, an OSC, then I don't see why in the interests of equal standards, why it's a problem if Hindus do it. Now, it's not a problem also if Hindus do it. You can have sub-identities with this Hinduism as a political identity. You can have you know, Dalit identity as a political identity. You just can't have an all-encompassing Hindu identity. Um, and why is that the case? What is specifically so terrible about the Hindu identity, which is why the word Hindutva is such a dirty word? Well, usually I find that any kind of discussion on this in social media ultimately leads to what I believe is a gaslighting argument. And I love to use the word gaslighting because it's such a progressive new age word. Um, I didn't even know what this meant till a few years ago. Uh, and, and, and then the response is that only communities that only identities which are under attack as an identity uh, are allowed or have the uh, have a good reason to form a political group. If the other quote unquote dominant identity forms a political group, then that's fascism. Um, well, leaving aside the central premise of this intensely flawed argument, let's look at the let let's look at the other thing. So let's presume that this is true. How is it, and this is where the gaslighting comes in, is how is it that Hindus as a group aren't under threat? Why is that the case? This, this, entire, this entire premise is based on a willful suppression of history. And I'm not talking about Mughal times. I mean, that's, that's part of it. This is why the... This is where the, hey, Aurangzeb wasn't a bad guy because, oh, they were, look at all these Hindu temples he didn't destroy. So this is based on a willful, almost hilarious uh, reinterpretation of history and sometimes even recent history, like, for instance, the genocide of Kashmiri Pandits. Uh, it, it totally ignores many incidents in India, which are hidden by the media by obfuscating the names and religions. In some specific cases, I'm perfectly fine with I'm perfectly fine with newspapers not publishing uh, the religious affiliation of somebody in, in any news. I'm perfectly fine with that. Because again, I want to focus on the individual. But in many cases, that's not true. There is no uniform standards for this. So that's why, you know, the hate tracker that I don't know, it's, it's I guess it no longer exists. They didn't record any kind of hate crimes on Hindus. It just didn't. And then that became the basis of data that was then used by international publications. Everybody referred to this one database with nary an analysis of how they decided what gets into the database and what gets out of it. It this, this narrative that Hindus are not are never under attack is, is so many incidents where that's not true. And again, it's true for any religion. It's not true. It's this is not, oh, Hindus are the only people under attack. No, that's not true. Wherever you are in a minority, you are under attack. Now, it's not a case as like people, say, for instance, in the US, you know, there are so many anti-Hindu 
racist attacks that have happened over the last 20 years. You have a state like Alabama, where I tweeted this link. Even today, yoga is not allowed because they because the Christian conservatives there believe that yoga is a connection to the devil. And this is perfectly fine in the US. Again, albeit in one state in the US, but some people in Indians told me, you know, how can you extrapolate from one backward state like Alabama to the entire US, which is an absolute paragon of you know, religious freedom. By the way, the same, the same logic isn't used when isolated incidents in Uttar Pradesh are used to tarnish entire India. That, that doesn't work at that point. And that's fine then. If you can't say, you know what, Uttar Pradesh is a really backward state in India. And so you should not really extrapolate that to mean that India has become intolerant. But no, that, that you cannot do at that point of time. But with Alabama, yes, you can. This is where the problem is, the, the double standards. And as this as a long-time listeners of this show know, this show is focused on looking and peering in and wiping the dust of the double standards that have characterized, quote-unquote, liberal discourse in this country. Now, if you want to look at what Hindus as a minority face, you just have to look at what happened in Bangladesh after Narendra Modi's visit there, where Hindus were attacked, killed, temples were attacked, um, which, by the way, was blamed on Modi. It was blamed on Modi. And when Sheikh Hasina, for instance, in 2017, when she visited Ajmer Shar- Sharif, Darga, there were no attacks in India. And that's, that's a great thing. That's the way it should be. Nobody blamed Sheikh Hasina for, for, for going to an Islamic place of worship and thus inflaming communal sentiments as if the problem is somebody visiting, a head of state visiting a religious place of worship. As if that's the big problem, it's not the communal violence that happens after it. Because, of course, as we know, some identities are absolutely fine and some identities are not. So this is a long-winded introduction for what I had wanted to cover in the last episode, which was that a bunch of Bengali intellectuals, this happened, I think, last week, which was why I wanted to cover it last week. They came out um, and it was headed by, you know, many people out of which perhaps the only uh, recognizable figure pan India would be Parambruto. Again, when I say recognizable, please, uh, please consider air quotes around recognizable because he would be perhaps be known as the other, the policeman in uh, in uh, Kahani. Uh, so he plays like in Hindi movies, uh, he plays the, in usually his, his role is sensitive Indian male is usually what he plays in, in, in movies. And he's, very, he's, he's, he's fairly popular in Bengal, though I think his star is on the wane. And he is uh, also known in Bengali uh, movie circles as perhaps the first guy who went and took a course in a US university on acting which then became the kind of uh, kind of level that and everybody has to come to the US for three months or you know, six months to do a course. And, and, and that's now become the, the water level for Bengali intellectualism in movie circles. But this is just an introduction uh, to Parambruto. I was very lucky that I sat next to him and got my picture taken when we were a small person like me. Um, uh, and of course, he, in, in Bongo Shomadhan, I posted it. So he was a fairly big star. But again, as I said, you know, his popularity as a star is kind of on the wane in Bengal, but that's that's not his fault. I think he's a fairly decent actor and he has screen presence and, you know, he's, but, you know, the reason why I say is that he is perhaps one of, uh, one of the names you would recognize in that social media statement that came out. And there was a cringe video along with it. Oh, and there's another person called Anupam Roy. And again, many people in Bengal won't recognize, many people outside Bengal won't recognize him, but he's a big deal in Bengal. Um, he's also a graduate from the other university, I think, computer science, electrical, much younger, uh, I think two or th- I don't know how many youngers, years junior to me, quite a few, perhaps four or five years junior. Um, and of course, insanely popular in Bengal for his music, some of which is as bad, uh, some of which is good, I'm sorry, and some of it is uh, essentially, a, <clears throat> and, and for those of us who study Jadavpur University, we know exactly what that means, basically a tukli of his good stuff. Uh, but again, these two were the names which were recognizable, perhaps not outside Bengal, but it's not important. What was important was, and again, what's interesting, and I would say that it was important, was that they came out with, with something, there was a cringe video along with it, and 
about the cringe video about you know the fascism and manuvadi fascism i think uh, fascist nazi manuvadi what what bjp was essentially that you know do whatever you want but don't vote for these fascist nazi manuvads which is what bjp is so essentially vote for trinamool congress but i'm too chicken to say it because of course i need to put keep my intellectual hat on also i'm not really trinamool either i'm actually a cpm guy but i'm ashamed to say it because if i say it then you will possibly turn around to me and say well how do you support stalin so i also want to wash my hands of uh the rather troubling history of uh the kaste hatuditara so i kind of pretend to be independent and say do whatever you want but just don't vote for this uh, fascist manuvads but if you look at the list of people who were part of it they're all like hardcore cpm people okay and some of them have of course played footsie with the trinamool congress for their own i would say for perhaps their own survival because ultimately as we all know the the paradox behind this whole fascist thing is that the quote unquote fascism of modi doesn't really hurt them it's the fascism of didi which does because they work in the didi market they don't work in the modi market because modi has no influence in their daily lives so there was this 5 minute propaganda video it was terribly done and this is what i was most disappointed at. i mean i am i'm not disappointed in what they're trying to say i mean what else are they going to say because um, you know if didi comes back they will have to ask for their you know whatever it is that they get that 1 lakh 2 lakh 5 lakh awards from the west bengal government so i'm not saying that what they were saying was fundamentally wrong or fundamentally not aligned with what uh, what they want but you know what a crappy propaganda video because if this one thing the communist party of india used to do very well was they used to make good propaganda video because propaganda is a big part of the whole communist experience so i have wanted to ask you know seriously what's wrong with these people yaar yeah, i mean they were growing up what they, they used to go to nondon and watch all these boxes movies i presume so what were they doing were they just you know playing footsie with each other in nondon and not absorbing any lesson as to how to make good propaganda videos anyways so the bjp they said is fascist nazi and manuva and you know they were not pulling you know any punches but what was interesting and this is really what i want to touch upon is that there's there's this subtext which is uh, which is kind of intrinsically attached to uh, the parochial politics of trinamool congress where the whole thing is everybody is bohiragoto because they don't speak bengali so this is this is again a, again an example of uh, supreme of rather supreme hypocrisy where it is terrible to be a hindu chauvinist that's fascist and that's nazi but it's perfectly fine to be a bengali chauvinist because that's i don't know what that is so it's perfectly fine to have bengali being bengali as a political identity and pointing to people who speak bengali with an accent by the way these people who claim to be bengalis don't know much bengali either many of them also speak bengali with a terrible accent so you know they they're not blameless so just putting it but anybody who speaks bengali with a marwari accent or they're all bohiragotos even if they had stayed in even if they have stayed in the state and they were born there it's not a problem unless of course it's like uh, it's like anybody who's joined the tinumul congress at that point of time they are insiders so anyways leaving that aside there's this our fundamental underlying historical falsehood that these guys like to say and i don't think that many of them even know this because of the way history was taught to them how do i know how history was taught to them because these people are kind of my age and we learned from the same history books which were written by cpm marxist hacks so i know exactly the history books they read they're all from you know my school or from the madhyamik exams so i know exactly what they read and so i've read it myself so the fact is that this hindu manuvadi ethos is essentially against this against the heterodox bengali culture so the cultural kandaris of bengal the part, the thing is that hindutva is foreign to us it is a gujarati thing it's a marwari thing it's a bohiragoto thing and that the hindu identity is something which is diametrically polarly opposite to the bengali identity so the bengali identity is nice and inclusive and we celebrate durga puja with everyone but these ram guys 
who coming from Uttar Pradesh, Bihar, Rajasthan, Gujarat, who are not Bengalis. I mean, look at the way they speak Bengali. There's something wrong with these guys. So this is an ethos which is absolutely foreign to us. So we should reject this Manuvadi fascist foreign influence. This is essentially the basis of everything they say, which is absolutely aligned. And this is a, perhaps a more a, a, an intellectualization of the kakakiki, all of that stuff that Mamata Banerjee does. This is a more sophisticated way of, of putting it. Now, the fact is that no matter what you think of the BJP, I'm not going to get into whether they're fascist or not. I mean, okay, fine. If you think they are, then they are. But with it, without getting into that, because again, I want to wrap this up within, within a reasonable amount of time, is that the, th- the thought that Hindutva as a political identity, as an exclusivist identity is a outside Bengal concept. This is a gross historical inaccuracy, which is spread either through genuine ignorance because they read the wrong history books or they did read the wrong history books. Then they actually learned what the true history was. And then now they again willfully choose to suppress the actual history. I don't know. I hope honest to God that it's the second one, because I believe that at least at least one thing I can expect these people to be is to be well-read. I hope that they're not basing their worldview based on their class eight history book. I sincerely hope not. But if I have to presume that they have read and they have willfully suppressing it, then that ascribes to them a malignancy, which I also cannot support because I don't have any data to back it up. So I'll just leave it there that I don't know whether they're genuinely ignorant or whether they themselves are choosing to hide the fact that the whole intellectual notion of Hindutva, like many, many concepts in India, came from Bengal. The term was coined by a person called Chandranath Boshi who was a disciple of Bonkim Chandra. And he wrote Hindutva Hindur Prokito Itihash. The basic tenet of a lot of Hindutva intellectualism in Bengal at the time of Bankim Chandra, who's the guy who wrote Anandamat, from which Vande Mataram is taken, was that the history they had been read, and again, if this sounds familiar, it is, that the, that the history they had been read has been is not the actual history of what happened. And this is something which Bunking Chandra himself said. This is a secularized history that is not actually even true, that has been taught, and we accept it to be true. So Hindutva was that political Hinduism, which now, based on this political Hindu identity wants to re-examine what has been accepted to be history. So I'm not saying that Hindutva as Parambrata would like to say it, which is people going in and doing communal riots, that was something which came from Bengal, maybe or maybe not. But the word Hindutva itself is as Bengali as Roshagolla. Somebody would say that perhaps Bengali Rashogola isn't Bengali, it's from Orissa, but I'm, you know, keep that to the side. Hindutva is very much a Bengali thing. Again, was this ever in our history books? You bet not. So, Bonkin Chandra's Anundamat, if you read it, and again, these Bengalis, because they also have to play to the Bengali parochial feeling, cannot go and directly attack Bonkim Chandra. They can't call him a fascist Nazi Monuva, except that by their standards, if they actually read Anandamot, then it would definitely be considered by their standards to be absolutely fascist Manuvadi stuff. But Prokrito Bengalis like Parumbrutu, who are very concerned about Bangaliana, would balk at such a description. How can that be? How can Bonkim Chandra be Hindutva? And it is. If you, and this is fact. The first edition of Anandamot was targeted at the British. 
But in the second edition, and this is something which serious Marxist historians have pointed out, was that Bankim Chandra basically turned the target to Islamic rulers. So according to Marxist historians, who obviously hated this, it was because Bankim Chandra was scared of the British. We don't know why he did it, but he did it. And it is, for those of you who have read it, an extremely provocative book. An extremely provocative book. I've always found it, you know, even when I read it, it's, it's, it's slightly uncomfortable for me. And, you know, I'm, as I said, you know, personally, I am a very, very, I don't consider myself to be, you know, I, I, I am a Hindu, and, but I don't consider myself to be a political Hindu. That's my own personal opinion. I don't consider myself political anything except, you know, Arnab. But I found it a little, you know, oh, what is this? But um, if Param Ruta wants to be honest and intellectuals should be honest, he should say that guess what? This quote-unquote fascist Nazi Manuvadi comes from Bengal. It, it, it's, it's, it, it's, it's very much a part of our ethos. Now, he might not agree with it. That's fine. Say that. But don't try to superpose this Bohiragoto narrative with this because what, this is not true. Because Bengal politics, the thing is, it has always been very, very communally polarized. This whole notion of this Amra Shabai Bangali, irrespective of religion, this is absolutely a Marxist construct. I'm not saying that you don't lie. And lying is sometimes good from a nation craft point of view. You don't, you want people to move away from polarized identities. I get that. I get that as a matter of real politics. So I'm not saying that some amount of subterfuge isn't bad, but the subterfuge shouldn't be that bad or that flimsy that anybody who spends about an hour reading history will find out that it is a lie. So the Bengal politics has always been extremely communally polarized. And this happened after, for those of you who've read history, the Battle of Plassey, when, uh, when, when the armies of, uh, of Clive, again, a, a British bandit, essentially, Lord Clive, bullshit, British bandit, British bandit Clive, um, defeated Shirajuddullah. Ultimately, the, you know, the mid the bulk of the treachery, the treachery where the Hindu businessmen who resented and, and the Nawab was a terrible human being, they basically said, okay, let the British come in. How, how bad could they be? And then when the British came in, because the nobility at that time was predominantly Islamic, who they felt they could not trust because after all, they were imperialists. They wanted to rule the country. They created the permanent settlement which was basically replaced replaced the Islamic ruling underclass with an underclass of Hindu rulers. And these people had kind of tethered themselves to the British. So they then there was a reversal of power within a generation. Muslims fell into poverty and Hindus eagerly clutched on to the British in terms of the language, that was when the quote-unquote the renaissance of Bengal began because Bengali Hindus started adopting English language, English literature, English science. They started and the, the Brahmo movement began, which was kind of a Catholicization of Hinduism. So it was not that they also were particularly quote-unquote proud of their heritage, but they wanted to move to kind of an acceptable form of Hinduism, where acceptability is defined by what Catholic priests say. So there was a movement. Again, these things are not simple. I mean, history never is. But the fact is that the division between Hindus and Muslims in Bengal has been there for ages. And it has been communal politics, Hindutva, Hinduism as a political identity, it's not just a question that I'm saying that this was a word that was used in some book. Somebody could say, all right, you got me there. But how does it have anything to do with the ground reality? No, the ground reality itself was that Hindutva was very much a part of Bengal politics for hundreds of years. And at that point of time, one of the 
one one of the persons who actually pointed this out was Rabindranath Tagore. He was one of the people who pointed this out that there is a huge disparity. And 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 I mean, I've discussed this before in my podcast that his his novel Ghore Bairi is an extremely prescient view of communal politics in which he's not blaming he's blaming the Congress Party for communal politics. By the way, he's not blaming the in the the fascist Nazi manuvads for that. He's blaming the actual people who began the kind of aggressive communalization that would lead to the partition of the country. When Bengal in 1905 was divided by Lord Curzon, the predominant narrative that the Hindu intellectuals wanted to tell people, at that point of time, it was more easy to control the narrative. There was no social media. Here we're talking about 1905, was that Bengal as a whole rose up against the divisive politics of Lord Curzon and they undid the partition of Bengal. That's not historically true, even though that was what was taught in our history books in the 90s. It wasn't true. The Muslim population actually thoroughly welcomed it because they were sick and tired of Hindu domination in the politics of Bengal. And Rabindranath Tagore himself said that, what do you expect? What do you expect them to do? We do not treat them as equal Bengalis. We define Bengalism to be Hindu upper caste identity. And then once the British, and we are perfectly fine with mollycoddling with the British, but then when the British come back and strike down upon us, we suddenly run to these very people and we expect them to be quote-unquote patriotic at that point of time. Why would they? Why would anybody do that? Um, when, and there's, there's and, and if you read Ghore Bayre, his, his his main critique of, of Gandhi, and I said this before, but it's an extremely, extremely nuanced critique, was that when you come and you, at you know, the non-cooperation movement, the boycott foreign goods, whatever Muslim prosperity there was in Bengal was based on the cloth trade. It was based on, because Hindu intellectuals normally didn't go into business. They were basically landed gentry who had then branched off into glorified clerical work for the British or were writing novels. Business was still predominantly, and the main business was export, uh, you know, ec- uh, you know, basically importing British goods from Manchester and selling them on the streets. And what did the Congress do under Gandhi? They targeted exactly that. They targeted the commerce that was predominantly Islamic. Not only that, they organized public bonfires. They and whoever did not participate was dubbed as an anti-national. And what did what did the Hindu upper class, upper rich people do? Well, they just you know they sued their own clothes, which was you know as I have said before was was that era's you know Instagram. So this was essentially for virtue signaling. They could sit there; they had nothing to do. Their food was there on the table, so they could sit and spin. And that cloth couldn't be sold because it was not done at scale. That cloth could only be worn. It was very thick. It was not, it was not practical to wear, but it was essentially a social media event. They're spinning cloth. It didn't help the poor. Nobody could wear it. And in one of the, and if you, for those of you who can't read the book, see the movie made by Satyajitre. There's a scene in which the, the person who represents the Rabindranath Tagore's view said that, you know, in 1905, when the Bengal partition happened, we talked about Swadeshi. I didn't go out. I mean, he's not saying this. His 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 teacher is saying this about him that you know he didn't go out and make fiery speeches condemning people's lack of patriotism or asking them to not use British goods. He went and he tried to make Indian soap. You know, maybe he didn't succeed, or maybe his products were also crap. But you know, his heart was in the right place. He wanted there to be an Indian alternative which was commercially viable before you went out and told people that you cannot trade in British goods because the consumers of these products were poor people and the people who made money from it were Muslim traders. 
So this was essentially where the conflagration that led to the birth of Bangladesh. And because in India, most India's focus is, you know, Hindi and Punjab and Haryana, the focus has always been on the Western side of the partition. So very less on the Eastern side of the partition, which was far more bloody, far more violent. And at least on the West, there was an equitable balance of population. So people from both sides changed. The land that was available was more or less the same. So there was not that amount of tension that there was on the Eastern side, where there was very little migration from West to East. Most of the migration was from East to West. And this led to, and this was one of the reasons that ultimately led to the impoverization of Bengal, this unequal distribution of population. But the the problem was that what I'm trying to say was that communal politics and isolation of of the Islamic population was not something which has started with Shobindu Odhikari or Mithun Chakravarti. This has always been there. One of the things that Bengalis are very proud of are like the Bengali revolutionaries. Onushilan Shomiti, you know, which was one of the secret societies, was used very strong Hindu imagery. And they didn't have, I can't think of, and I might be wrong, but I can't think of Muslim freedom fighters in Onushilan Shomiti because it was a very, very, very Hindu organization. And so was Jugantar, which was another, which were kind of broke out, which was kind of a sub-organization from Anushilan Shamiti. And many of Bengal's greatest quote-unquote secular heroes, Bhagajotin and Kudiram Bosh, Prapullo Chaki, they would not perhaps be very happy with the way the Anupam Royas and Parambrutas are characterizing what they believed in. So many of the Bengali heroes who have metro stations named after them or who are considered to be quote-unquote secular, were actually not. They were strongly subscribed to this notion of a Hindu identity, a Hindu political identity. The India which they saw was predominantly a Hindu majoritarian state. Again, I'm not passing any judgment on anybody, but I'm just saying this was the truth. And again, there are Marxist historians like Shumit Sharkar who have pointed this out. This is not something which is not known. This is fairly well known. It's just that people don't like to talk about it. Goldwalker, right? Everybody knows who who he is. Guess where he, you know, guess where he learned, guess what his inspiration was. He went, came to Belurmot, okay? And he studied under Shami Akhondananda. And what is Belurmot? Belurmot is Ramakrishna, Ramakrishna Thakur, he is, his picture is there on every Bengali wall. So he studied his notion of Hinduism came from Belurmot under Samyo Akhondonando, who was a disciple of, of Ramakrishna Thakur. So the very intellectual foundation of RSS can be traced to something which is essentially very, very Bengali. Now, RSS shakhas have existed outside Kolkata for a long time. Again, Bengali intellectuals who are very Kolkata-centric are blissfully unaware of this. I've heard many of my quote-unquote secular liberal friends say on WhatsApp, there was never an RSS in Bengal before. Oh yeah, there was never an RSS in Kolkata before. But Kolkata isn't Bengal. As a matter of fact, in a past life, when our current chief minister, Mamata Banerjee's chief enemy was the communists, she attended RSS events. Guess what? Um, and what did she say? Well, uh, let me quote. This is from Times of India. In between, she, Mamata Banerjee, went through what appeared to be a saffron initiation by a, attending an RSS function held to mark the release of a book listing the crimes of communists in India and Nepal, taking in one fell swoop everything from CPM to the outlawed extreme left. The book is written by Panchajana editor Tarun Vijay. Okay, so this is the event that Mamata Banerjee is attending. Though top RSS functionaries Mohan Bhagwat, Madan Das Devi and RSS elder Ajvi Shishadri as well as Defense Minister George Fernandez were present, 
Mamata was clearly the star speaker. BJP MP Balbir Punj introduced her as Hamari Pyari Mamata Ji, Jo Saksha Durga Ma hai. And she responded equally eloquently when it was her turn to speak. This is the first occasion that I have had to meet top RSS leaders, she said in Hindi. But I realized immediately that these are the real Desh Premi's patriots. She added that she was pleased to see that RSS shared her concerns about the left, a political grouping she had spent her entire political career battling against. Denouncing the communists as fascists and hypocrites with double standards. She said that the Trinamool Congress's natural ally was the BJP. I, this is, and I will post the link for those of you who want to read this. This just goes to show, this just goes to show that the, for the Parambrothos of the world, whatever they're saying is nonsense. It's based on, as I said, a willful suppression of past and recent history. The fact that the people they support, or, or, or is the point that Mamata Banerjee did not know what the RSS were. And as long as the RSS was helping Mamata Banerjee, this is basically the same relationship that she had with Maoists. As long as the Maoists were helping her in Nondigram, Maoists did not exist in Bengal. It was a communist Chakranto. The moment she became the chief minister, everybody became a Maoist. Everybody became a Maoist. I'm sorry, you are Maoist. So these Maoists, in a space of a few months, from no one, to they suddenly just basically took over the whole state. So this whole notion of fascist outsiders, all of this, all of this is nothing but political posturing. These were her best friends a few years ago. And she had absolutely no problem with the Bohiragotos like Mohan Bhagwat, uh, Modundas Devi, Tarun Vijay. These were not that, there's no problem with that. And then they were then as Bengali as huh, Roshogolla again. So, again, when Bengali intellectuals lampoon people, like they lampoon their own people from like becoming BJP and to the traitors to their communist Trinamul cause, they conveniently forget the record of the person who supports them, you know, this in their, you know, middling artistic exploits. And I'm talking about Mamata Banerjee. There is an interesting video that I found out about one of the new joinees to the Trinamool Congress party, who is now saying, you know, what a great, great and glorious leader Mamata Banerjee is. They have the speech of hers, contrasting with the speech that she gave uh, two or three years ago, when a movie was banned in Bengal, effectively taken out of the theaters, because they felt that it was lampooning Mamata Banerjee. Um, again, no fascism there at that point of time, but she was a bunch of a few very, very CPM um, uh, actors, including the great Shomitra Chatterjee, who were there, who were criticizing Mamata Banerjee. They were actually had the, they actually had, were brave enough to say that then. And she was then saying that, you know, many of my fraternity are, um, you know, are afraid of, of saying what the truth is. Maybe they, you know, they're very happy with the one lakh that they receive from the state government. Well, this person two years later, I guess, is, uh, I guess, taken that one lakh. I don't know what it is, but it just goes to show, you know, how hollow their intellectualism and how hollow their stance against Fasibadi is. They're absolutely fine mollycoddling with all kinds of fascists as long as it serves their interests. Now, again, None of these intellectuals have talked about the fact that we had the Badwan bomb blasts on October 2nd of all, on all dates at Khagragor a few years ago. Mamata Banerjee blamed the raw for that. Bengal has be, had become or still has become a hotbed of dissidents, terrorist dissidents in Bangladesh. So what we blame Pakistan the same thing Bangladesh can blame us for doing at this point of time. This was not a problem with any Bengali intellectual, by the way. And there was no problem that Mamata Banerjee was blaming India for manufacturing that. Again, if Trump does this, it's a problem. If Trump supports Russia over his own FBI, 
then these same Bengali intellectuals will share that as a status. But they have absolutely no problem, maybe because of that, in the nice grants they get, when Mamata Banerjee does the exact same thing. Now, which brings me to the fact is that then why has BJP never been a force here if Hindutva politics is as quote-unquote Bengali as a Roshagolla? Well, it's principally because of what I have said for many years. BJP has never had a Bengali face. It hasn't, and it's not just a question of a Bengali face. It's that the BJP's um, whole marketing has been targeted towards the UP Bihar base in the sense its definition of what the Hindu identity is, is broadly predicated on the UP Bihar version of Hinduism. Again, since Hinduism is inherently not a religion with the same kind of simple yes and no's that other Judeo, the, 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 the Judeo-Christian or Abrahamic religions have, it is a collection of traditions. There are multiple flavors of Hinduism. And rather than focus on what is common to all of them, the BJP has frequently taken an extremely myopic um, UP Bihar based. And I, I don't think that the myopia is deliberate. It is because their main political, the, their, their entire political cadre, their, their leadership cadre is picked from those two states and Gujarat. So what do you expect is going to happen? Their definition of Hinduism is basically based on their own lived definition of Hinduism. And one of the biggest things is their insistence on vegetarianism, cow worship, things which are not driving forces of the Bengali version of Hinduism as a political identity. These are not some of, let's say, the iconic uh, symbols of what even a Hindutva sympathetic Bengali would think. As a matter of fact, the very fact that the BJP leads with this aggressive vegetarianism is off-putting for many Bengalis who would then say, when well, you know what, they're going to come and snatch away our fish. That has been BJP's biggest problem. And if you think I'm trivializing things, is it, does it all come down to fish? No, I'm not. This is exactly the way most Bengalis think. And this is where the Parambrutos and the and the Mamata Banerjee's can then drive their truck and say, look, you know, Parambrutta won't do this. But Mamata Banerjee does. That's where she sometimes plays the soft Hindutva card. She says, I am as Hindu as anybody. You know, do you know what my gotra is? And she says, you know, my gotra is, I don't have any gotra. I'm a Hindu Muslim. Oh, by the way, it's Shantilda, by the way. So uh, the, 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 the whole thing is that this is where the parochialism is dr driven. This is this is the this is the intellectual gap that Mamata Banerjee can ram through. She says, "You're proud to be a Hindu." No, I don't think you're proud to be a Hindu. I don't think really that you believe in Hindutva. You want to know what Hindutva is? Hindutva is not eating fish. Hindutva is doing you know celebrating Holi a day after. Hindutva is celebrating Kali Puja a day after and calling it Diwali. You know, you really want to be that, be Bengali, be proudly Bengali. And this is Bengali. It's not that Bengali identity is inimical to Hinduism. Look at me. I'm a Banerjee. I'm a, you know, my go through is Shandil. Look at me. I mean, do I look like that, you know, a person? No, I'm not. So this is what you really believe in. This is what Bengalism is. And now let me be fascist. So in terms of the severest critiques of Modi's and Yogi's brand of politics, which is fascism, authoritarianism, uh, cult-like cult personality, suppression of dissent. Mamata Banerjee is absolutely no different. In many cases, she's worse. But she's able to distinguish herself based on this very narrow definition of what Hindutva has been as propagated by the BJP. And this is where BJP has to work on. Now, you can say, well, what has BJP done differently? Well, right now, what BJP has done differently isn't that it has kind of changed its appeal. It's changed its intellectual underpinning. It can't because it's, as I said, its think tank comes from those states. But what BJP has done is basically it's outspent. It's outspent the whole Congress in a way that's just unbelievable. They've really thrown the kitchen sink to use an old Ravi Shastriism. And they have essentially bought 
no other way of putting it, bought the most, you know, the most the the portions of the party minus Mamata Banerjee and her nephew who have the biggest ground appeal. So they have focused it on purely winning seats over pure winning arithmetic. And again, my my thing is it might work in this election. I still don't think that the BJP is going to win, as I said in my last podcast. I st- but Mamata Banerjee might not get a majority by herself. She might have to ally with. So it was definitely going to be way closer than any election in Bengal has been. I think that's a fairly widely held consensus. I again might be wrong. Um, but the thing is that how, how is this strategy sustainable? Let's say if BJP wins. How is BJP going to sustain this, uh, sustain this without making an ideological pivot? Because ultimately, you see, people, as I've said before, they don't vote. Regrettably, they don't vote on data or you know what people have done. They vote on emotion, which is why Mamata Banerjee and all this, much of Tindamul Congress's electioneering, as well as BJP's, is based on emotion. And so, how will how will Bengal, how will the Bengali BJP's notion of Hindutva evolve? It's not that the Hindutva notion does not exist in Bengal, as I've said before, it, it's, it's, its birthplace is Bengal. But it's a different kind of Hindutva because the, what, what a Bengali thinks as being Hindu is fundamentally different from what a guy from Uttar Pradesh or Bihar or Gujarat or Rajasthan thinks of as being Hindu. It's, a, it's not any less trenchant. It's not any less passionate. It's just that the contours, the definition, the boundaries vary. And so how will the Bengali Hindutva align with the majoritarian BJP Hindutva is something that I want to see in the next few years as a dispassionate political observer away from all of this, because as I said, I see myself as an army of one, and I want my politician to treat me as an individual and not to treat me as a group. Because once you treat anybody as a group, you can basically convince them, I've done a lot for you. Well, not for you, but for your group, because nobody can ever see tangible things as what somebody does for a group. I can only think tangible what you have done for me. And that, for me, I believe is the only way that one should interact with democratic politics. But I'm also well aware that that is not the way that people interact with democratic politics. Ultimately, they're guided by, you know, the the, the, the word that Plato liked to use, which is thumos or glory. And that glory comes from appreciation as either an individual, which, again, a politician can't give you. But the easiest thing is appreciation as a group. So my identity is now considered to be dominant. If a politician can show you that, they have your vote. With that, I come to the end of this month's of this week's podcast. So again, once again, if you liked this podcast, if you like this podcast in general, please consider supporting it by becoming a monthly subscriber at Patreon. So uh, the link will be provided. Um, and uh, again, it's voluntary. Contributions start from a dollar a month. I uh, would greatly appreciate you becoming patron. If you if you listen to this regularly, once again, all content will be available for everyone. So um, paying or not paying does not matter in terms to access. There is no paywall here at the Attention Please podcast. So till next time, bye-bye and have a nice weekend.